what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you another week of what's going on pop culture my name is pat sheehan joined by my trusty co-host dave martin swagger dave how's it going man it's going well the squid game it's finally ended and we're finally ready ended yeah we're, we're, we're caught up we're talking a lot of tv today that, that was probably the hardest thing about the weekend was just a lot of yeah. tv to watch but it's yes. good stuff yeah. Um, remember, remember I, these weeks. We have them once in a while where there's like a lot of shows ending at the mm-hmm. same time. And naturally, I let things uh, pile up. Yeah. <laughs> no matter I mean, what I tell, tell myself, I'll do. But things pile up for me. So, yeah, I, I do a good job of keeping up with certain shows like Ted Lasso, we're going to talk about. I usually was pretty much up with that and following the conversation. But things like Marvel What If that we're going to talk about, or even scenes from a marriage, are just things that. I just tend to let pile up, but we're also going to be talking about some uh, some music today, as well as a big movie that came out over the weekend. James Bond, No Time to Die. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what accent I was going for there. I don't know who that was supposed to be. Connery, I guess, but it was really bad. Uh, <laughs> anyways, if you want to hear more bad impressions or some smart hot takes, hit that subscribe button on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and follow us on Twitter at nostalgiapod. Um, Dave, let's start though with Houston boy, Don Tolliver, mm. dropping a, uh, a new album this past week. Uh, you know, did, I, I can't even remember. Did we review his first one? I don't think we did, right? We did not. Heaven yeah. and Heaven or Hell? Heaven and Hell? Heaven or Hell. Heaven or Hell 2020. Yeah, right. I think that came out raise the pandemic started we did not talk about that but i mean people have probably heard him here and there even if they're not don't recognize the name because he was on astro world of course signed the travis scott's cactus jack and quite recently of course had a big part on donda kanye west's uh, moon song in particular he has a major contribution so don tyler's been around and we mentioned him for xxl xxl i thought he would get it in 2020 given the success of Heaven or Hell, the Travis Scott affiliation. But he actually did not get picked, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, but he's continued to rise. And now we're at this uh, second album or proper debut. I forgot how they're saying it. Life of a Don, the second album. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> you mentioned all those ways we've heard him. So his voice was familiar when I started listening. But I, I think... As I worked my way through the album, I felt like I felt almost like I was not sure what track I was on a lot of the time, because especially in the first half, I felt like a lot of the songs, especially the vibe of the songs, felt very similar to me. Almost kind of this like slow, jammy ish, like, I don't know, toned down rap music, rap, mm. hip hop, um, R&B even a little bit. It felt like a, a nice blend. It felt like a nice listen. Um, but nothing really popped. There were some songs in the second half that were a little bit more um, like traditional rap songs and sit out a little bit more, but pretty much I think up until like the Kaylee Ukis song, I was really like, uh, which is drugs and hella melodies. I was really like, man, this, these tracks are sounding very similar to me. Did you have that same experience listening through? Totally. Totally. Yeah. And it's actually funny that the Kaylee Oogie song stood out to you because they are actually dating. So Ooh. a bit of a chemistry professionally and, and personally, clearly. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, I just never got the hype. 
I, I've never been a big fan. And especially with Heaven or Hell, he clearly was just biting everything Travis Scott does. Travis Scott's his, his mentor, his fellow Houstonite. But he had he never did anything to stand out apart from Travis to me on that. I mean, there were some successful songs off that, which on TikTok, like After Party and Cardigan, but I was not impressed. And then on this, you can still see the Travis lineage. I think it's more of an aesthetic thing now. Like Don Tolliver's a vibes guy, you know? Yeah. And it's not that he has a bad voice per se, but I feel like a lot of times he just lets himself get drowned out on the production. And lyrically, he doesn't add enough to stand out more often than not. Like he had a really big hit last year uh, on the Internet Money album, Lemonade. It's a huge song with Gunna. And you listen to it and it's just like, it's very like sanitized, like carbon copy, this type of vibe stuff, which is quite in vogue. So I don't think he's that special. Like leading up to this, people were like Don Tolliver as album with the rap album with the year potential. And I was like, how the fuck could you possibly think that? Like, where's the evidence? You know, like, yeah, he's a decent singer. That, that's all we got though. Like, I don't really know what the keepers are supposed to be on this album because it's just, as you said, kind of just drowns on and on and i don't, I don't yeah. think there's a lot here it's a lot of like slightly auto-tuned like oohs and ahs throughout it you know and like you said i think he definitely is a vibes guy and it definitely feels more r&b-ish than i was expecting i think um but certain songs did stand out to me i think especially a song like swinging on swinging on westheimer which um is production wise probably my favorite track here um, you know, there's a lot of like mild distortions around the um, the beat loops and around the drum loops on this. And uh, I, I really just felt like I, was, I listened to a lot of this driving. And usually that's where I can find myself vibing to things like this. I found it I felt like it was just really like a uh, standout production wise song. I don't know about lyrically on it, but just sounded the best to me. in that first listen through um, on the second half. I'm trying to think like I guess outer space with baby Keem stood out maybe that's because Keem stood out to me a little bit yeah. like a, a like a vibe switch up a bit and he really rides that track really well I thought so but other than that I don't know if nothing really stood out to me too much yeah I, t- I totally agree uh I think what was nice about baby Keem's guest spot was that he like comes back into the song like a second time yeah. too it was just, it was quite a good feature um I guess if I was to point to anyone, like, what does Don Tolliver do well as this, you know, singing vibe stuff we keep talking about? I guess 2AM is, like, the best evidence of that. But still, I, I find him quite boring. So it is what it is. Yeah, I-, I think I get the appeal, but just not really my thing. So anyways, why don't we move on to something that similarly is vibey. Uh, my- our guy. James Blake. James Litherold, I think his actual name is. I didn't realize his name wasn't actually just James Blake. Um, But dropping his new album this past weekend, Friends That Break Your Heart. And if the title doesn't give it away, James Blake, folks, he's in his feelings again. Dave, were you surprised by that? No. No, I guess not. Still with uh, Jamila Jamil. Actress made famous by The Good Place. Notably, Jamil has multiple producer credits on this album. So the feels, the uh, emotions seem to be uh, tested and 
and uh, tr- uh tried out with the relationship i don't know it's uh i guess that that's kind of interesting but yeah it's uh kind of funny to like think back on the arc of james blake's musical output because it's it's definitely an interesting curve right like even just the last two out things we've talked about the before ep last year and the assume form is most recent album in 2019 there's like a lot of variety in terms of like what he's trying to do mm-hmm. and i think because there's like ebbs and flows to the sound of james blake there's also ebbs and flows i think to my uh appreciate i not appreciation of it but appetite for it because he's changing it up so much like there's james blake i like and there's james blake i definitely don't really like either you know so yeah. i think i think it depends what james blake you're listening to yeah it was funny when i was listening to this the first time through i was just like man this is like really good but it's also just not for everybody and like the thing is you can appreciate that he is like an expert at crafting songs i think one of the things I'm just always impressed by in his music is like the texture of songs, the way that like it can really like give you a feeling and a place and like just like puts you wherever he wants to put you emotionally. But it's also just sometimes too dreary or sad or downright boring. And I found myself kind of going up and down on this album a lot, you know, whereas Assume Form, I was just really impressed almost the whole way through and felt like everything worked. I felt like on this album, I was a little bit more like, oh, that will sit out. Uh, this track kind of fell off and it was a little more up and down for me. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's not, yeah, so Assume Form is definitely my f- second favorite album from his after Overgrown, of course, which is kind of like the touchstone at this point. And this this definitely wasn't as like dreary as uh, the color in everything, color of it, everything, the, the, the third album. Yeah. But at the same time, like you said, it, it it's it's up and down, and that like dreaminess that he brings with his singing, with his production style, uh, I think the effectiveness again was up and down a bit. So there, there were definitely some cool moments. We get again, he's an eclectic artist; everyone knows that at this point. But it didn't sound like as groundbreaking as past moments from James Blake have. Yeah, I. I think I, I felt a little frustrated by this, right? Especially because like over the course of the pandemic, when a lot of artists were doing like the Instagram lives, you know, playing music for free to their fans, you know, he, dro- he dropped this version of Godspeed that got like a lot of attention. And like, it, I don't think it's better than Frank's. I think some people would disagree. I think some people feel like he almost like made the song his, but it just had this like, twist to it where he he, his voice and his vocal performance just evokes so much emotion and can portray so much and i think at times like on this i almost felt like he almost got too lost in trying to make things too perfect or just too overproduced and like like songs like los angel nights I feel like his vocal performance on that, and I'm pretty sure if this is the one that I'm thinking of, and I'm now getting a little confused. Um, it, like things drop out at the end, and it's just like him singing, and you can just hear in his voice. And that's what like sucks me in. You're just like super impressed with how he can portray what he's trying to get through. Then there's songs like I don't know, "Famous Last Words," the first song, just feel totally flat for me, and just felt like it didn't really work that well. Maybe it's just like too 
too much, but like it just feels like something's missing. I guess I can't really put my finger on it at the moment. Right. I mean, he's always been a hard, hard one to put your finger on, even when his his sound is. It changes a lot, but it's also hard to pin down. Um, in terms of the moments that actually did stand out to me in a good way, uh, you mentioned Lost Angel Nights. I think just in general, the vocal performance of that whole song is really impressive. There's those mm-hmm. moments where his vocals are kind of like doubled up on each yeah. other. It sounds awesome. Um, foot Forward, I liked. I thought yep. the piano sound was nice, uh, which would make sense because Metro Boomin's one of the producers on this, along with Frank Dukes. Um, and in general, I think the chorus on Foot Forward is really good. And I also thought, I'm so blessed you're mine. The production, there's like a drop, like a minute in. It's really like glitzy and unlike what you've been hearing to that point in the album. On the other hand, though, like, I thought all the singles were kind of dull. You know, so it's it's uh, it's not his best, but it's also his, what, his, his fifth album. So I guess it's okay. He's going to do 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 things this is james blake you know he, he went back to his dj roots last year on the before ep so yeah you can't count him out in terms of what he's gonna do i think i've mentioned i've seen him dj live and he's really talented but um you know i wanted to hear what your thoughts were on a song like frozen with jid and uh sway bay mm-hmm. um you know there, there's some real interesting production choices almost like kind of harkens back to like kendrick lamar um and good kid mad city production choices in terms of mm. uh you know changing the vocals up speeding them down pitching them up or down what did you think of, of that song frozen yeah no I, I guess it's interesting especially with jid coming on and james blake's always been pretty affiliated with pop and hip-hop um just because people would seek him out because of his unique uh skills and all that and on the other hand, I, I don't know if I've ever been wowed by him alongside like a rapper. Mm. Like he's not the best part of J Rock's King's Dead, you know, for example, mm. even though he's on that song. But it was cool to hear Jid, I suppose. Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting song because I, I thought those production choices stood out, but I don't know if the song overall really stood out. Like Suave's um verse in particular just felt like didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um but yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with a lot of these. Um, I don't know. He's a frustrating artist because I just feel like I just want, I just want to like love his stuff, and it's like right there, but it just right. never really catches me the way that I hope it does. So right, I don't know. Disappointing, but I think it's time to move on from music. If you want to check out our uh, favorite tracks off these albums or all the albums that we've talked about this year, go to uh, Spotify and search Nostalgia Best of Twenty Twenty One. But Dave, now we have to explore the question. What if um, Jeffrey Wright has been narrating throughout these uh, these animated episodes? Been watching of what if? Yeah, he's just been watching until he until he didn't until he intervened, broke his oath. Uh, a little spoiler, I suppose. But um, we talked a lot about Marvel What If last week in comparison to. Another Disney property, Star Wars Visions, that just uh, just dropped all their episodes, and this was a more week to week thing. And I think we were just kind of like, "What are the actual stakes of this stuff?" You know, um, and maybe feeling like it wasn't actually as risque or forward thinking as maybe it's been billed to be. Now that we've seen all nine, has your take changed at all? 
Overall, not really. I, I think it's usually really safe storytelling and is not really pushing the envelope the way something like Star Wars Visions did in the manner of being non-canon and willing to take chances and actually introduce new ideas, right? Marvel What If at the end, though, did introduce more serialized storytelling. It started connecting its episodes to one another and ending with that finale. Um, and I guess that's cool for from an investment standpoint where like, it, like the storytelling is more uh, interesting and I think easier to... Uh, to, to invest in and that's because like i said because it's often really safe and each individual episode isn't doing anything too uh, revelatory when it's what if blank happened at least because it's all trying to tie together and tell like a bigger story i think that's a nice you know uh, note at least but mm -hmm. still like I, i'm not the biggest the biggest fan of it i i think just minute to minute it doesn't do a lot to differentiate itself from other Marvel cartoons which aren't supposed to be in the MCU and this one is with the multiverse but I still am not super wowed but I, I like how it was tied together at the end yeah <clears throat> I think I think what I left feeling I appreciated most about this was just the I, the fact that even though it pulled together you really got like seven bottle episodes in a sense you know until Ultron shows up it's really like just goofing off having fun uh, you know, what if Thor were an only child and just threw a huge party on Earth for weeks on end and Captain Marvel had to come and be his mom for, you know, <laughs> I don't know, a day or two um, or the, the zombie episode. You know, what if um, Hulk returned what, to a zombie apocalypse? What if Train to Busan was a Marvel cartoon? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I appreciate that they they tried some some weird stuff and took some swings. I think. It's interesting. The stuff in the beginning of the season, actually, I found a lot less interesting, like the T'Challa the Star-Lord or right. uh, the Captain Carter stuff. I think it got a lot more weird as, as it went on. And as we've said, we want Marvel to get more weird. And that kind of turned with the Doctor Strange episode. What did you think of that? Where it's like Strange versus Evil Strange? Yeah, I mean, it's cool. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I guess my my hang up when I say they don't take a swing is I think thematically it's still all is very Marvel, very familiar, you know, and it's like even if like the plot, what if the plot, uh, you know, like you said, zombies happen. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's on the on its face sounds radical, but like it's still just kind of a normal Marvel story. So, yeah, yeah, you're right, though, that it definitely turns. And I think the Ultron episode in particular, like the major Ultron episode, uh was a big highlight for a lot of a lot of people mm -hmm. um but yeah like you mentioned the the t'challa one like I, I wish the final chadwick voice performance was uh something else i guess you know because it's not like it, it, it's kind of strange right like i guess the best part about that to me was seeing like thanos being not actually that much of a bad guy and just having him interact with people you know but like t'challa as star lords is kind of like a I don't know, like, did, like a first grader come up with this idea? Because like, I don't understand like what was so <laughs> tantalizing about the idea, to be honest. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Thanos. He gets murked like a couple times in this, just like super easily. Right. <laughs> just, like, like Ultron just slices him in half immediately. I was like, blown away by that. But I also, um, I also think that Marvel. I mean, I, I guess I brought up the strange one because it's we're doing uh doctor strange into the multiverse 
Um, very excited to see what comes of that. I think that this is like the first taste of what we could potentially see. Obviously not like strange versus evil strange, but just like the weirdness of like the the world of Doctor Strange and the potential evils of it as well as um, you know the, the light side of it and that balance. Very Star Wars, I guess I'm saying out loud. But I also just think that Marvel maybe overestimated the impact that these on-screen deaths of these superheroes that we've seen be invincible up and I guess until Tony Stark in uh, Endgame um, would have. Whereas, you know, when you see Tony Stark get killed like seven different ways in this series, you're just kind of like, ah, okay, this doesn't really hit that much. The first time when all the heroes are killed, it's a little bit like, oh, that's actually pretty interesting. But uh, I don't know, pretty quickly, um, I I think that lost its muster. What about for you? Well, and that, that's a thing that's happened in the comics in general with multiple Earths, you know, and in and, and, and the multiverse, whether it's DC or Marvel, whatever it is. It's hard to maintain stakes, especially yeah. like this, where like this isn't like some grand crossover, at least not until the very end. Right. So like episode to episode, it's like hard to care too much beyond just being generally entertained, you know, because it's, yep. it's just different kind of storytelling yeah. and it takes a lot of tact. Now, uh, they're making a season two. We've known this. Mm-hmm. They're making season two no matter what. So you'd like to think they take the finale where that leaves us in a interesting direction. And I hope storytelling wise, they try and branch out and do things a little differently. But uh, I don't know. I feel like this is kind of like chapter by chapter thing. It's going to stick around. Do you think there's any chance we see the watcher Jeffrey Wright in the live action movies? Yeah, so there's kind of like unsubstantiated like rumors online, which probably are nothing, that we might see some like Captain Captain Britain or something might pop up in Doctor Strange 2 coming up. In general, Doctor Strange 2 is this big uh, what if, <laughs> pun intended, mm-hmm. with all the things that could happen, right? Obviously with Wanda and Strange and No Way Home and introducing anything, right? So that, I guess, makes sense as the opportunity, but... I'd have to see it first. I'm not banking on it. Yeah, I'm not banking on it either, but I would, if I had to like put odds on it, I'd say that there's like a 40% chance that they do something like that, you know? I don't know. I mean, they did put Kang the Conqueror's on-screen debut on a show in Loki. Didn't see that coming. So I wouldn't put anything past them. But animated is also, I feel like, another step to take animated into live action, you know? They do yeah. it they do it a Lucasfilm, but will they do it with Marvel? TBD. TBD for sure. But Dave, something that is not TBD is Ted Lasso. Because we know exactly what we're getting with Ted Lasso at this point. Uh or do we? Yeah. I guess maybe maybe the season was surprising to some people. We should we should say Ted Lasso, incredibly decorated television show, oh, one yeah pretty much every Emmy that it could have won uh, last month. So, you know, this for season one for season one. And this this show, I think, has been kind of knighted as like the feel good television show. And I got to be honest, like uh, catching up on it definitely felt very good watching. It's definitely a show that lifts you up, especially season one. Season two has seen a little bit more of a mixed reception at times, right. uh, a little more up and down. You, you finished that, finished it just general reaction at first to the season 
uh, a positive, positive and more positive than I expected because ah. I wasn't the highest person on season one. I, I liked the show, but I didn't love the show. I think for me, that was partially because I don't find it that funny. Like, like the joke telling, the joke, the laughs per minute is not on the level of like a what we do in the shadows or even hacks, you know? So the feel good stuff is great. And that's mainly because it's different and unlike most of our popular shows we've gotten recently, right? Ted is definitely not Walter White, you know, yeah. not even Michael Scott. He's really uh, good. But season two actually introduced some real dramatic stakes. And it's really funny to, to reconcile all that, because as you mentioned, there was a bit of a critical uh, reevaluation with season two, especially in the early uh, going of the season which is, you know, a few months ago now, because it's 12 episode season week to week, it's been a little bit. And all these criticisms actually kind of got alleviated as the season progressed and the show got a lot darker and a lot more uh, dramatic. So it alleviated a lot of my concerns at the end. And I'm actually more interested in season three than I ever was in season two or season one for that matter. So uh, I, I was impressed and a bit surprised because I just didn't see it coming. Well, I, well, I think the episode to episode um, like highs weren't as good. And certain things I felt really let down by like the, the beard bottle episode, I thought could have been so much more interesting and fun right. and just was really a letdown to me. Um, I agree. I think like the direction the show is going, the exploration of mental health issues, the development of tertiary characters and tertiary relationships around um, Ted has, has been really well done. Um, I particularly liked the stuff with um, Sam and um, uh, boy, what's his name? I'm forgetting the the millionaire from uh, uh, not Ghana, I forget his name. Sam Sam Richardson's character. Yeah, Sam Richardson's from, uh, character. I believe he was Nigerian and and Sam uh, is Akufo and Ghana. Uh, yep i might got that wrong but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a unexpected development in general you're right sam much more well-rounded he's i think he's a lot of a lot of good stuff in season two yeah so and you just you had it flip that uh sam's nigerian and uh right. kofo's a, a Ghanaian. but yeah i really like the the stuff with with sam and, and his development there um and then of, of course i think nate um is probably the mm. the character that has developed the most maybe not in the best way but um i think you see him come into being the the villain or yeah. the antagonist so to speak what did you think of that twist i thought it was great and it's another big answer to earlier concerns with the second season because when we're at the end of season one beginning of season two quite quickly it's like well uh rebecca She's not the villain anymore. She was basically the main villain of the first season and basically rooting against Ted and, and the team to get back at uh, her ex-husband, right? That's gone. And Rebecca's just, you know, uh, totally a, a, a good character now. Roy comes back into the fold as a coach. And then Jamie Tart joins the team and more or less becomes a completely different character in terms of how he interacts with everyone on the team. Even if he still has some demons, he's a lot gooder. So like there was there wasn't really any like conflict week to week anymore. Obviously, uh was it Richard, whoever the ex-husband character, yeah, kind of looms in the background, but he he dips in and out. So it really wasn't like a week to week conflict. And, it, and and that conflict became whichever characters 
uh, personal demons happen to be coming up that week, especially mm-hmm. towards the end of the season. And the way they like slow play uh, Nate's turn, someone who he's feeling marginalized, but then taking that too far and basically backstabbing the team. Uh, but in the process, having a great comment, a lot of criticisms of the show, because Nate kind of espouses, I think, a lot of common uh, you know, comments, right? How the fuck mm-hmm. is Ted Lasso still this coach? Why doesn't he know anything more about <laughs> soccer now? This is his second season doing this. You yep. know, having all that happen, I thought was really great. And, yeah. I'm, I'm, and it's him being the West Ham coach now, leading into Brilliant. season three. I, I, I'm actually like stoked. Yeah, dressing like Darth Vader. Also, like his his hair change, like over the season, being yes. like one of the indicators of his like turn. I thought was like a really like nice touch. But I, I agree. I think it's like uh, not only bringing to light the commentary about the show, the negative commentary about the show, and into the show, but also I think just how a character like Ted, who is so good, um, can have this sort of effect on people, and not necessarily that this is like a normal reaction from Nate but he Ted did build him up a lot in the first season and you do see him you know kind of just like there but he gets you know Roy as the the other head coach who then kind of becomes the apple of Ted's eye so to speak um and that it just extrapolates all of these things going on in Nate's life and the effect that Ted had in, in a negative way even though Ted's goodness still shines through through most of the season thought it was really well done and I also think it kind of sets up that this is a three season show according to um the show co-creator bill lawrence and it kind of sets up that this next season is probably going to make ted come to terms with terms with himself and most likely i imagine go back to the united states at the end right. see his son but uh, i think it sets up nicely to have a three season arc now that Nate is like the big bad for one more season so. yeah totally um I also really liked a lot of the stuff with Keely and Roy and the relationship. Kind of curious where that goes from here because they, Keely leaving the team, you know, uh, feels a bit in the periphery of, of, of the show. I hard pressed to feel like they just take Juno Temple off the show. She was just Emmy nominated for season one. Like, and in general, I, I wouldn't put it past them to make more than three seasons given how rapturously received. The show yeah. has been it's by far the biggest uh, show on Apple TV plus so TPD I guess there a little bit um did you have uh, any moments that were like by far the funniest moment again it's not a show with like uh, the best the laughs on TV moment. but in general it has a comedic tone so things happen for me uh, I, I really like episode 10 in general the, the funeral episode mm-hmm. and uh, just with a lot of good conversations there again the dramatic stuff coming up but there was just a one-liner from Roy when he's eating the apple <laughs> and he's like, uh, tastes like dead people. I, I thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> the, ro- the apple he got from the church. Yeah. Did you have anything that was really funny to you? Um, you know, I think in the first episode, um, goodbye Earl. And I was like, is this like a reference to the Dixie chicks? You know, Ted makes all these references throughout the whole show. Mm-hmm. So I was like, is this like referencing the, the, the Dixie chick song? And then, uh, when one of the players uh, steps up and, kicks the shot right into the dog who blocks the kick from going in yeah, it just Danny even Bohas. though it was sad to see the, the the dog die that way i thought that was like a pretty yeah. funny ending to the, the season or the, the show i should say um i'm trying to see i i don't know i i did like a lot of the stuff between ted and um 
the therapist, Sharon. I thought she was a nice addition to the mm-hmm. season and someone that was just like turned off by Ted's niceness and of course comes around on him, but like had to grow in her own way with it. And then having the whole like, oh, that bastard stole my move like thing at the end from yeah, the, at the bar. Know, Goodwill Hunting. I thought that was nice. Um, I agree. I think overall episode 10 was probably my favorite of the season. I just thought it set up a lot of growth for Rebecca with her family. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's anything else that stood out comedically to me. Do you have any other moments? Not really. I, I mean, I appreciated seeing the in sync uh, bit in episode 11 where they're doing the bye 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 choreo- choreography. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think because the show got to a stronger, uh, dramatic, uh, thematic place, the lack of high tier joke writing is more forgivable now. Yeah. Honestly, the majority of the jokes are just really stupid, dated one-liner references from Ted. You know, it's not not the best, usually. Um, I did like when he said, uh, nip it in the butt. And he's like, it's actually nip it in the butt. And he's like, oh, really? Oh, horticology is straight. And she's like, oh, uh, yeah. never mind. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. But anyways, Ted Lasso, I think development and definitely improvement, maybe not as consistently good to good week to week, but the show's moving in a good direction. Excited to see season three. Why don't we move on, though, to something that was a little bit shorter, but we already talked about the first episode, Scenes from a Marriage. You got Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain, fresh off of uh, Hemi Faye. Yep. Go check out that review. Oscar Isaac, fresh off the card counter, about to be in Dune. Hell yeah. Dune. Can't wait. I'm just so pumped for it, man. Especially now that we see Chalamet just dressed as uh, Wonka all over my timeline. Oh, God. Anyways, (laughs) scenes from a marriage, five episodes. We talked about the first one. We've seen the whole thing. I gotta say, in talking about the first episode, I was like, you know, this isn't the sort of thing I like to sit with. I felt that way throughout the the show. It was really hard to watch some of these fights, the the back and forth in their relationship, seeing their uncoupling felt just Mm. very like painful at times and difficult. I felt like the show had a really nice payoff at the end and episode five totally won me back in or pulled me back in. Uh, I was very impressed with where it wrapped up. And I think this is Jessica Chastain's best, best performance since, I don't know, uh, Zero Dark 30. Mm. I don't know. Been a long Been time. A she, yeah. she was great though. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was pretty exceptional and that's despite the fact that, as you said, it's not fun to sit with this show. It's not fun to sit with most of the scenes. And whenever things are going well in their conversation, there's always something in the back of your mind, in the pit of your stomach, that's about to explode and go bad. And often that does happen. But you know, I hadn't seen the Igmar Bergman miniseries based off of so I don't really know how the pacing would go. But each episode being a certain stretch of time after the first one is really, I think, choice and really helps. It's not just five straight hours of a complete divorce and breakdown of relationship happening without pause, mm-hmm. you know, years pass by the end. And in the process, the performances change and get tweaked. Chastain in particular, as you said, there's like a really noticeable like change from her in episode three in the beginning, I think. And generally, you know, just world, they're both world-class performers, so it's awesome. And having each episode kind of be its own thing 
and largely centering around one really big conversation, one really long, protracted scene, a lot of dialogue. Uh, it's just it's just high level. You know, the dialogue's really good, and it's watching two intelligent people have a have a fight, and like it it, it always made sense. It always seem realistic you know it's not it's not as like showy as like you know like stuff you might see on like mtv or something some reality Mm -hmm. relationship show right but this actually felt really really real like i think the writing was 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 exceptional so i I was quite invested even though again it's it's not the, the the best thing to sit with often yeah, there were a lot of moments where I was like watching it through my eyes or through my hands. I was always watching it through my eyes, uh, watching it through my hands because um, like the when Jessica Chastain, you know, second episode comes home and tells Oscar Isaac that she, you know, is in love with Polly and wants to go be with right. him. Ooh, and then his reaction after she leaves, calling uh, their friends and yelling yeah. at them, it was just like brutal to watch and his like emotional reaction was just so visceral it really like it, it was gutting in a lot of ways or seeing the like shoving match that they have in um episode four when or was it episode three when uh they're they're signing four, the divorce papers and uh Chastain doesn't want to and oscar isaac's trying to leave and trying to stop him and uh, a lot of that stuff is just brutal to watch but then has some really sweet moments um, some really nice moments of connection and, and I think they really sell the like the spark and that like yearning for each other but also that like inability to work through or come to a place where they as a, a couple actually make sense and actually work for each other and it, it's just really expertly written like you said to have and to have these two actors obviously helps like when you have two top-notch talents that they can really bring a, a script like this to life so yeah super impressive yeah absolutely i feel like i don't have a whole lot more to say because it's a lot of two people usually just two people talking in a room inside usually right it's a, it's, it's it's simple staging and i think it i, I don't think it's ever been a staged play the, the, mm. you know the original miniseries i don't think it's been adapted to a staged play and if it hasn't i think it definitely would work as one you know it, it, it's yeah. very uh you know theatrical in that regard um yeah Again, might not might not be the the most fun piece of theater to see two people just fucking tearing the shit out of each other half the time, but um, with good acting and good writing, you're still compelled by it. You know, them going yeah. back in the finale and going back to their old home, which is an Airbnb. I thought that was a lovely touch. You know, yeah, I thought that was great too, and I was just really struck by the framing of the show. Or- or at least I guess like the development from the first scene where, you know, they're doing this uh, interview for a research topic and uh, they're very like guarded in their answers, especially Chastain. And you like just slowly see the unspooling of these people, they're them becoming more open with each other, becoming more honest with each other, with themselves. And just by the end, they're able to have very difficult conversations about other parts of their lives about realities about themselves um realizations about their lives and just really really impressive to see that that growth and yeah i'm just really impressed by it. you know i didn't think i was gonna like it as much as i did so i'm really pleased that we stuck with it for sure agreed you'd have to imagine hbo will uh campaign heavily for this in the miniseries category oh, yeah. like they're wanting to do at the emmy so we'll find that out next year 
hundred percent. Uh, and hopefully it wins some stuff as well. And, you know, I'm very interested to see if squid game, the new Netflix, uh, uh, TV show series that has really like captured the nation and the world in a lot of ways. I mean, this is definitely one of the most watched shows on recently, but maybe all time, even, um, you know, this like dystopian future, um, on a series about capitalism and the effects of it. And I don't know, uh, I, I guess it's like, there's a lot to dig into, but why don't we start here, Dave? nine episodes i think the the take right now is that this is probably the surprise of the year well no no shit (laughs) (laughs) but did you feel like this this series was was really good from what yes yeah you you thought it was really good i think i was a little less impressed and i I maybe want to talk out why but what what did you feel like made it really good yeah so as you said it's uh, according to Netflix themselves, it's on track to be their most watched uh, series of all time, surpassing The Witcher, surpassing Bridgerton. And that's in large part due to it being completely global, right? It's a South Korean show, South Korean production distributed by Netflix. But because Netflix goes so hard with subtitling and dubbing, it's basically accessible to all of their customers. And it's really cool to see Netflix create an organic hit in this manner. Because again, this is not based off anything. This is completely the creation of the writer and director, Huang uh, Dong-hyuk. This is completely his creation. And that's just cool to see Netflix do something that only really they could do, make a hit of this magnitude all on their own. And I I thought it was really exceptional for a lot of reasons. I think it's a really compelling show in the sense that you get invested in these characters and their journey. And there's a few key decisions the show makes early on to keep you invested and to uh, teach you more about these characters so that you're really, we want to be along for the ride. And you're not super concerned a lot about a lot of the early plot armor because it all just makes sense and it's quite compelling. And on top of that, like you said, because this is a modern you know, South Korean show, there's a lot of talk about you know, Korean class disparity and even a little bit of, you know, the gender dynamics. It's a big part of Korean culture too. And seeing all that, I think, sprinkled in along a a show that is really compelling, has a really stark, immediately engaging visual style. And I think does have really, really strong performances and compelling actors, even though, yeah, obviously in my case, I'm reading the subtitles. It was kind of the whole package for me. I think a big part of that too is because it's a surprise. There's no expectations, right? Yeah. And this came out a few weeks now, a few weeks ago now, uh, September 17th. And I think it took about a week to really take off. And at the same time, it was a word of mouth hit. This was not heavily marketed. It wasn't even that heavily marketed in Korea from what I understand too. This was just a success online because people liked it. And it also had a big meme, uh, component of course like anything successful does so uh i just you know took the chance because someone recommended it and i'm really happy i did because i i was quite compelled you know maybe maybe the uh the show might peak in the middle and like the ending kind of sets itself up for future potential that's not 
as I think compelling as when you're in the heart of the squid game itself. But, you know, I still thought the journey was great. Yeah, I, I agree with most of what you said. I think what most impressed me about this show is um, it had the ability to, like you said, suck you in with its visual style and with a lot of mystery and just like inquisitiveness about the setup of the game. How are they doing these things? Like, how are they going to navigate each game? There's like a lot of plot devices that really are just made to like grab you from minute to minute. Um, I think what I found frustrating was the um i guess when it came to like the actual games how pretty much it felt like every episode had a moment where um like a basically a character had to do something that was like awful of them in order to like get through the game and also every single time every single time uh um what's his name uh ji-hun Yes. Got through at the last second at the last second every time. Come on. Like they had to like they had to put him like, I don't know, ahead of some people one time so that he wasn't always last, like literally every single time. Unbelievable. Yeah, I guess, you know, he it's a small critique. He's not a not that competent in life. I don't know. It kind of makes sense <laughs> to me, you know, and yeah. I, get, I think the key decision that sets Squid Game apart from other stuff that's familiar, right? Like, um. Battle Royale, the Japanese movie from 20 years ago that really spawned the, the the genre that we now use for video games and the inspiration for Hunger Games, stuff like that, right? Battle Royale, you're just dropped on an island with these young people. You don't really know anything about them. You just watch them kill each other to survive, and it's still quite compelling. But this, in Squid Game, we have our one central protagonist, as you said, Jihan. But the key, and, and as we learn about more of the other characters, the key is that in episode two, we leave the game. And they go back to Seoul and they all come to the realization on their own in some way that they actually do need this game because the actual real world, that life is not any good. And Mm -hmm. you just, by spending more time with everyone outside of the game, I just think it really makes you invest in everyone's journey. I think it was a really smart choice. And, and and definitely from there, you just kind of rip, you rip roaring into the games, you know? Yeah, and I actually thought episode two, though, obviously necessary, was one of the episodes that I just found myself, like, least compelled by because they were outside of the game. And I think everything within the game is just so much more. And you know they're going back to the game, of course. Yeah, or or that would be a really weird choice they didn't. But um, I I think to drive home the the point of the show, you know, which is like the like the downsides of capitalism and the way it. Um, impacts people's morality and yes who they are and the sacrifices people make for money um to like take them out of the game and have them make the choice that going back and most likely odds are that they're going to die but that's better than just living the life that they have because they're in such a dire financial place is like i think a brilliant even if it's like heavy-handed metaphor for sure um i also thought one of the things I, I liked about the show in a lot of ways was you really get invested in some of these characters but man then when some of them die or some of them turn you really really i really hated the show at some points like watching um abdul ali uh you know his his demise at the hands of song woo and just song yeah. woo's whole arc in general is just like right. super gutting and yeah, really the marbles episode which is episode uh six i believe yep was uh huge highlight right you get that turn 
from Sangwoo. Mm -hmm. You get the death volley, but I think also you get the death of the of the old man. Yep. You know, and the old man comes back around in a way I don't think anyone saw coming, and I don't know if it was that compelling, but his death in the Marvels episode was I thought was 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 stellar. You know, yeah, because again well, they pay it off, and you're on this journey, and you know the old man's not going to make it. You know, mm -hmm. hours earlier. But when it still happens and the way it happens with that Marvel's episode, you know, um, as he's having the dementia and stuff like that, mm -hmm. it was really well done. Yeah. And, you know, for him to then become lucid and really like teach Jihan something about himself in that moment, I thought was really well done. I agree. I didn't think his like him showing back up at the end really paid off that well. However, we're going to talk more about this in a second. I, I do wonder if some of the translation of the subtitles maybe maybe affected that only because obviously in um, like uh, Asian lore to have that like wise old man who like talks in like parables or in riddles or mm. things like that is like a, a I don't know, like it, it's a, just a character that kind of recurs a lot or comes up yeah. a lot. Trophy. So I think they're going for something like that and it maybe just didn't land or maybe something was lost in translation. It, like literally, I don't know, but um, I appreciated where they were going with that. Um, yeah. So tell me about the characters that you found yourself liking the most, maybe liking the least in the squid game. Yeah. You know, I think Jihan, especially in the beginning is quite unlikable, right? It's like, it's hard oh, yeah. to sympathize with someone like, I, well, you just have a gambling problem, man. Like mm -hmm. you're just stupid. Like you make mistakes. You're not a great dad. You don't take you, you mooch off your mom. Like he's not likable for many reasons, but because he's still your avatar, I, I feel like a lot of like the problems a lot of these characters have, uh, there's something relatable about them, right? Mm -hmm. One way or another, how these people came to have debt or you know great misfortune. Um, I, I I think the the clear clear like highlight, the clear breakout from the show would be uh, uh, Sebyok. Oh yeah, played by uh, uh, Ho Yen Jung, who is a noted Korean model. This is her first acting role, and she's broken out in a huge way. I think rightfully, rightfully earned. You know, she's she's the North Korean defector character, and she. I think the performance is really good. It's, you know, it's, she doesn't have a lot of lines off the not, but it's like a really commanding presence as one of the, you know, people on the team who's not our main protagonist, and. The breakout is quite something. She's up to uh, 19.4 million Instagram followers. Before the show, it was only 40,000. She's now wow. the most followed Korean actor on Instagram. Only acted in one thing. And in general, that's just a really stark social media following for Koreans, given that there's only like 52 million people that live in uh, South Korea. And Amazing. I mean, if you, I remember this happening on a smaller scale with like the sex education cast or the stranger things kids, you know, after the first season, right? Like Netflix can mint a star, but, uh, Oh yeah. she's already more followed, more followed than anyone except like Millie Bobby Brown. Like it's kind of crazy, the scale of this. And I guess it speaks to how pervasive and, uh, international South Korean culture is becoming. There's a, there's a big appetite for it. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I thought she was the clear breakout to me as well. Um, you know, and uh, an interesting part about her character being a defector from North Korea, her mother still being stuck over there, brother in an orphanage. 
thought that added another interesting aspect about um, that culture and obviously the conflict between the north and south of Korea um, definitely stood out to me. Um, you know, the, a character that I didn't really like that much, um, but it seems like maybe there's more to her than anyone who doesn't speak Korean really got was uh, Minio, uh, who was um, the old woman they were calling her, you know, the one right. that um, like buddies up with the gangster and just seems to be disliked by many of the players. Yeah, a little, she's kind of on tilt. That's like her survival instinct is to be uh, a little crazed. At least that's how it comes across. Yeah, and to also be willing to pretty much do anything to survive. Right. Um, and, and we see that in many ways. I think just uh, like certain aspects of the show, but I think also just an aspect of um, a style of um, uh, acting that maybe is not as prevalent in American acting. It's just like the like over the topness and like the, uh, um, I don't know, I guess like goofiness that sometimes comes across. Like Ji Hun, I think sometimes his reactions just seemed like uh, way over the top and, and uh, just like way out there. And I think uh, Minio really uh, had that going the whole time. And that just felt like a turnoff to me. I think that's just probably like stylistically different than what I'm used to, which is pro- I probably talked about it too. But her as a character and her, that actress just didn't really do it for me that much. But um, what, what did you think about her character? I didn't mind it. I, I liked how she did early on, like the stuff in the bathroom when like uh, Ho Yen goes up into the uh, mm-hmm. uh, duck to try and find some information stuff. And then when uh, she like, you know, latches onto the gangster, I actually liked the gangster character a lot. Mm. Um, I thought he was effective as a villain and how they both die um, on the uh, glass stepping stones at the end. Like you see it coming a few seconds before it happens. I was like, oh, no, actually, this is really fitting. Then they both mm-hmm. die together like that, you know. So yeah, as like you know, they're like secondary characters in the main cast. So they, I think they kind of have a different a different purpose. But it it was cool to have the gangster be a, a villain in a sense where he also has basically no control the way you know our 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 main characters do. You know, the the overarching villain is you know everyone running the game, but then there's still room for more villains and. You know, uh, I think one of the one of the most astounding set set pieces is when there's that like strobe fight in the the dorm room after yeah. one of the games at night, and it's just this complete brawl. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was crazy. You know, and I mentioned the visual style in general. It's kind of cool. Like uh, watching the show, I'm like, oh wow, you can tell they this was completely made. Uh, you know, in studio, like these are clearly just oh, warehouse, yeah. you know, sets except for like the soul scenes. But it makes total sense because the way these games are operating, it makes sense that they're in these, you know, warehouses. Uh, so, you know, that that's cool. But in general, just like the boiler suits for the mm-hmm. staff, the jumpsuits for the players, really bright, you know, backgrounds, game to game. It's mm-hmm. simple, but it really is effective and draws you in. Oh, yeah, it totally stands out. It almost feels a bit like you're at like a casino or something like that at times. So. Right. Um, you know, obviously has that like glaze uh, effect on your eyes a bit. Um, just wanted to touch base real quick about uh, why I liked Abdul Ali so much as a character. And, you know, you talked a lot about how the show has brought in different aspects of, uh, you know, class and, and, and 
the the culture wars between those classes i thought seeing the the racism uh right. towards abdul ali and the the consideration of him as like not as not a korean as a foreign worker from pakistan and also someone with a disability you know with um you know obviously his hand i couldn't tell if that was a born disability or something that oh, was right. an yeah, in- injury um but i thought that was interesting too like just that aspect of it and of course he has probably the most gutting death at least in my opinion just because song Wu totally crosses him and i mean he's a bit dim-witted and you know starry-eyed in that moment i think but um it, it i thought he just it was a really effective ca- character within the show what do you think of him uh yeah you know i think he, he doesn't have enough lines to me beyond like expressing confusion uh to the rest of like the team mm. so i was more struck with the old man's death just because i feel like the old man character is more layered but ali is like you said is important for what he represents i think thematically as yeah. a asian person who was otherized because he's not uh, the right Asian for this yep. specific situation for that culture, uh, at least those people. So yeah, it's st- still really good. And yeah, I mean, those two deaths, I think in tandem, you know, again, like you said, having Sang Wu totally take advantage of him and, 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 and show who he really was in terms of trying to win this game and you know, how morality and, and you know, losing one's humanity. It's a continuing theme. So yeah. And Hopefully we haven't again. talked about Song Wu too much, but I mean, obviously his rise to be the villain of the season was just like super well done, I thought. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and on, on the surface, all these characters are kind of archetypes, right? Like Song Wu, he's the suit, you know, he, he's there because of investment debts and stuff like that. And Ji Hun, I don't know, what, what is he like? He's like, I don't know, kind of like the deadbeat, the bum almost, yep. right? You have your old man. You have the cop who we haven't really talked about, right? There's a lot of like easy to understand like archetypes here. But like I said, I think they pay off everything as well as they can, and because you get a lot of time with the characters, that they don't feel like uh, just caricatures. And I actually think if Ali had a few, a few more moments to his own, he actually would be even better. But it, I think it just speaks to the show that even though he was definitely on the side as a character, his death was still really effective. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned the stuff like behind the scenes of the game, the the cop, the right. um, you know the the front man, the VIPs, yeah, man, all that stuff. What did you think of, of all that stuff? Yeah, I thought the VIP stuff was obviously pretty pretty weak, pretty uh, mm-hmm. superfluous, and and the cop, you know, he he was interesting. I think necessary to see because he's a way for us to see um, more behind the scenes, and. I think a lot of that stuff probably the payoffs down the line if there's a season two. Because at the end of the day, that like thematically isn't super compelling. It's just more like as a viewer, like, okay, well, what the fuck's going on with this game? Why are they doing this? Like, what's up with these people? That's kind of all you're there to find out. And then you don't actually get it from the cop. In the end, you get it from the old man coming back into the fold in a surprising way, right? So... I was compelled just for the sake of the mystery of it all, but I was definitely was more concerned with what was going on with uh, the players. And I, I did appreciate though, when we get the front man and we find out uh, he's the brother of the cop, but the front man is played by uh, Lee Byung-hun, who's I think one of the most recognizable Korean actors uh, to, to Western audiences. He's been in numerous Hollywood movies. So I had to do like the Rick doll and I was like, Oh shit. 
I know who this is. How how cool is that? Because he he wasn't like advertised as part of the show. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I'm the same. I I thought a lot of the stuff between the front man and you know the behind the scenes with the cop just didn't really wasn't as interesting. Obviously, you just kind of want to be in the game, but like you said, a necessary um, device of the plot to build out everything and, and give you some insight into who's behind it all um we, we touched briefly and this is probably gonna be the last topic we talk about on this before we wrap up uh, i mentioned a few times the difficulties with translation and obviously this is a show that is shot in korean language um but the trans i think a lot of people have either watched it with the english dubbing or obviously read the, the english subtitles and there's been some i don't know about controversy but some commentary going on around the show about some of the aspects of the writing that's lost in the translation. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I think when it comes to translation of subtitles, uh, it's it's unavoidable, right? Obviously, if you don't speak Korean, you need to watch it with the subtitles and just go with what they are. The subtitles are usually as good as they can be. But yes, a lot of foreign words don't have a direct translation. So the writing is inherently not the same. And that's just a sacrifice you have to make. Now, I think if you're doing the du- if you're watching an English dub or any other dub for that matter, I think that's a big part of why Netflix is finding a lot of success with its international shows, such as Money Heist and Dark. You know, Money Heist is I believe Spanish and Dark is German, right? Like, and Unorthodox is German too. But they dub things in 30 languages. They give you like almost 40 subtitle languages, so it's available to anyone, any way they want to watch it. And at least if you're watching it at all that's better than not watching it period right but i do i do think that you you are making an active choice in a negative way if you watch a dub of live action because it's effectively becoming english voice acting on top of this show in the case of anime in the case of cartoons it's the same difference because it's literally already voice acting but yeah. In in this case, I think watching listening to some voice actor give you the translated performance when when we could just actually listen to the real actors give the real lines the way they were directed to, you know, there's definitely a lot more loss to me if you watch a dub of, of something foreign. You know, I remember Bang Joon Ho, the one inch barrier of subtitles. Like, I'd rather watch the real acting from the real actors, you know, not that voice acting is real acting, but it's, it's voice acting. And this was not For something sure. with voice acting. So that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I ended up watching it um, with the dub basically for the sole purpose that I, I had to do other things this weekend while watching it. Um, so I wasn't able to give it as much attention as I wanted to. And I really wanted to miss as least as possible, but I agree. I think if, if you're able to just tune in and just watch a show um, or a movie Watching in the original language and reading the subtitles is always the way to go. You can just get so much more in the, the vocal performance of the original actors, I believe. Um, I think it's important to remember that uh, translation, just in general, is an art form. It's not a perfect science, and there's a lot of interpretation that goes into that. Um, and I think there's always, like you said, there's always going to be things that are lost unless you're able to understand the original language. Um, and also, I think, know things about the culture that the um show is coming from um but i have to say i mean like even though it's it's hard to lose certain things like uh Minio, the character i mentioned uh who i wasn't that big of a fan of 
there's a translation um, of something she says in one of the episodes where, you know, no one wants to play with her, where um, she says like, oh, no, I'm smart. I just didn't get a chance to study. Whereas um, before, like the other, the what the English dub is, is something like, oh, come on, like, just just pick me like I'm I can do good or I'll do something. And it just like totally changes the way that you view the character in that moment, you know, but I, I think it's I think in, in the end you can get the the main gist of the show. I think it's just you lose some of those small interactions and those small takeaways that maybe aren't so small in reality for certain characters, but don't take away from the larger overall themes, in my opinion. So um, I don't know. I, I think I think this is a something that will continue to be debated, obviously, as more and more foreign language uh, shows become popular and really pop off like this in the United States. Hope we get more of them. But um, overall, I mean, honestly, it's just a thing of your time. If you actually have time to watch the show, then watch it with the subtitles. Right. If you can't really watch the show, then I guess listen to the dub. You know, it's two different things to me. For sure. Um, why don't we move on, though, to James Bond? He ain't got time to die. No time. No time, baby. Woo. It's over, Dave. Daniel Craig, Bond, the five films, they're done. We're going to talk in a little bit about who we think the next Bond should be. But now that you've seen the fifth installment, No Time to Die, long anticipated, many delays for this movie. It feels like it's been coming out for like three years now. Originally was targeted to come out in 2019. Of course, we have the director change, Danny Boyle out, Kerry Fukunawa in, set for April 2020. And then COVID happens, and it's delayed three more times, finally comes out October 2021. So this movie, for many reasons, was supposed to already be out. And you have to imagine the picking the next James Bond lead would have also been a lot more advanced had this movie actually got to come out when they want to come out. But in the process, Daniel Craig is technically the longest running James Bond actor in terms of years playing the character. He, of course, didn't play him in the most movies, but something to be said about that, I have to, I have to imagine, right? He, uh, I believe he was 37 when he started in Casino Royale. He's ending the, ending the run at 51. He's been Bond a long time. A very long time. And I, I think a really good Bond. Um, Fuck yeah. Probably, you know, number two, only because Connery just, he embodies Bond to the fullest, his Bond, in my opinion. Yeah, I would say overall, I would, I would I think Craig's movies are better or at least more advanced. They're quite different. There's still a lot of really good Connery Bonds, but they're very different. Uh, yeah, but I guess you, you give the edge to, to Connery, given the classicness, iconicness that he brought to the character originating it. So. Yeah, it's clearly I think these two guys though, Craig and Connery yeah. for the best. And your your third would be? Hmm, that's a good one. Roger you know, Moore. like I, I'd say Roger Moore, yeah. but Lazenby, one and done. Honor Magic Secret Service. Like that's a banger Bond movie, you know? So I think that's like the inspired take. Lazenby yeah, three. It's just hard to hard to give it for one performance. But I, yeah. as we digress, we have uh we have, I'll say it. We'll say we have our guy, Kerry Joji Fukunaga, right? Who, uh, you know, obviously true detective fame. It been been rising in in stock as a maniac filmmaker. on Netflix. Yes, um, man, I forgot about that show actually. 
But anyways, he, he comes in to wrap this up. Did you feel like he landed the the boat or the the ship? Do you think he, he nailed this ending? Oh, he definitely landed it. There's no problem with that, you know? And, was and, it a smooth I, landing? <laughs> I think more or less, you know, yeah. I, I love the movie. I, I thought it was really effective, especially the end. Um, I think a lot of the sins that this movie might have from a storytelling perspective are not the fault of Kerry Fukunawa. They're the fault of uh, the, this Bond runs uh, shift into serialized storytelling, which is really a brand new phenomenon for the Bond movies. The Bond movies used to be a not connected thing at all. Yes, the same actor plays Bond for a few years, and the same actor might play Blofeld or Q or something or M. But other than that, there's like no connection at all. And that that is largely out, out of step and uh, out, out of practice in today's franchise filmmaking, right? So No Time to Die has to answer for a lot of the ills that uh, Spectre, the previous film, introduced. Uh, but I, I, you know, I did a full rewatch of all the Craig movies coming into this. So I was kind of up on uh, what was going on in Spectre. I know not a lot of people were. It's not the most, certainly not the most beloved of the Craig run. Or so if you might have been a little hazy on, uh, on Spectre. Uh, I can understand why you might be confused about like what's actually happening. But then the hardcore like emotional beats for Bond and for Craig all really work. And I really liked how it ended. You know, I think thematically, this top level, you weren't going to be better than Skyfall. Skyfall was perfect. It right. could have been the last one, you know, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I, I still quite liked it. What about you? Yeah, you know, I think there are certain aspects of this Bond that really I thought were just like right up there with some of the stuff in Royale or um, in uh, Skyfall. But I think there's also some major problems and some things that really make the film not up to that level for me. Um, and we'll, we'll get into them. I do want to say, though, as a send-off movie, and also considering the fact that I think Craig wanted to have a different take on this Bond. He wanted right. he wanted to build out the character more than they ever have. And like you said, the serialized storytelling plays to that. But I think just in general, having an older Bond, having a Bond that um, ha- like acknowledges his paramours' deaths and things like that and being impacted by them, Bond that wasn't even part of MI6 when this movie starts. So there's, there's a lot of like stuff to work through there. I think it's a really good send off movie because it gives them just some awesome scenes, dude. Like the, the scene that, that's your background with Anna de Armas might be one of my favorite, like set yeah. pieces of the whole run of Craig. Oh, so, definitely. So yeah. I think overall it's, it's, it's effective for sure, but it's just not, it's not like top two for me in the series. And I was hoping it would no. be up there. No. And that's the thing. I, I actually just want this to be a clear three. And it is. Yeah. And it, it definitely is. Uh, Skyfall Skyfall is the most advanced and intelligent of all the Bond films for its the best Bond and then the best Bond movie for its you know meditation on colonialism and what it means to be nationalistic and did a really good job of bringing the Bond character which is a quite nationalistic and conservative and dated premise bringing that into the modern age and recognize rec- reckoning with what that means and what that means now versus what it used to mean. Right. Mm-hmm. And those themes still kind of continue with Spectre, 
you know, in terms of like the uh, mass surveillance stuff. And they continue with no time to die as well um, with the bioweapon stuff, I suppose. But it was just done at such a high level and an emotional level with Skyfall that it's really tough to, you know, come down from that. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I have to accept that, that like writing wise, like we already peaked and it's hard, hard to expect more than that. And Casino is just really tight and really fun. And that's yeah. just a bunch of bang up moments, especially in the first like 90 minutes. So, and the Casino also doesn't have to worry about answering the specter, which again, this yep. movie has to do, you know, uh, Leah Seydoux's dad is a huge part of this movie. He's dead, but he's a huge part of this mm-hmm. movie. Mr. White, who is in Casino and killed in Quantum. Or no, no, no he's in Casino and Quantum and, and he dies. Uh, Inspector, right? Dies Inspector, yeah. It's like, uh, most people don't know, remember who Mr. White was because he wasn't like this compelling villain per se. He just was there. Le, Le Chief's like dude, side dude. Mm-hmm. And then he gets retconned into being part of Spectre when Spectre comes out. So it's like, there's a lot of ham-fisted, again, the serial nature that just they kind of did on the fly. So, and that's asking a lot to like make people super invested in that stuff. And even Lee Seydoux, right? She's only introduced in Spectre. Again, not a beloved mm-hmm. Bond movie. It's not like she was Eva Green's Vesper and we've been with her since 2006, you know? Yeah. Uh, so th- there's a lot of stuff that I don't, I don't know, like what they could have done without just ignoring a lot of it in particular right and i feel like they they just decided early on they weren't going to ignore it so that's why it's the way it is this way i do have to say though like uh leah sedu seems like she's got a lot of talent i i do not buy Daniel Craig and leah Leah sedu's on-screen chemistry that much um and I, i feel like that's like a that was a difficult part for me for you know especially when you're getting ready for bond's like final send-off and his last like time talking is with this woman who i don't really totally buy the relationship and they're hearkening Hmm. back to vesper who man if you want to talk about like on-screen chemistry eva green daniel craig crackled every time they were together in royale and then he it it just felt a little bit more flat with with sidhu and and Bond, uh, Craig so I don't know I, did, I felt like that was a little did you think the ending was flat because I thought that shit made it dusty you know I thought the way he goes out and the way that builds up it's especially you know like watching him like crawl around at the end there when he's clearly like shot the shit by Rami Malek and not in a state of mind to escape like you know you know for 10 minutes he's not making it out and I feel like they oh, really yeah. nailed it you know no, I, I I thought I thought the ending was was really effective. I don't know if I teared up, but I definitely thought it was like a proper send off. And I, and I appreciate that they let Bond, I guess, have like a family to care about rather than just like talking to M, you know, and being like, I gave my service to the country. Like they let him become a person instead of just a mm-hmm. agent of nationalism. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It didn't didn't hit me in the field as much as I thought it would but i still thought it was really good and i i like you said i think also having that dread that like oh he's dead like this is there's no way off this uh, it's like a really cool choice i thought that was really yeah. great i mean 
it just totally reminded me of when Han Solo dies in The Force Awakens. Harrison Ford did not want to be Han Solo anymore. <laughs> Daniel Craig did not want to be Bond anymore. You have to imagine they might have mentioned that, you know what, can you just kill me so people mm-hmm. will shut the fuck up and leave me alone <laughs> about this? Yeah, well, and they, they left no doubt. Like, he gets yeah. blown up by a ton of missiles, and that was a great last shot, too, of him just, like, watching oh, yeah. the missiles come down. Perfect for Bond. I thought that was great. Right. Um, also, him with the kid, great stuff. Having the, the kid's toy with him at the end, great stuff. I buy all that. I think the stuff with him and the, his daughter was really well done. Yeah. Well, I, that's, a, that's a thing, too. I would say Craig is the best actor to play Bond. Connery became a really good actor, but he was not actually at his peak in his 30s when he was mm-hmm. playing Bond. You know, yeah. I feel like he, he, was, he was more high class in his later years when he started playing older characters. Craig, though, and a lot of this is due to the way they made these movies, especially towards the end, imbues a lot, a lot of humanity and uh, longing at the end of No Time to Die. And I think it's his best performance as the character. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought he was... I mean, I think he's probably the best actor Bond as well, but I, I don't really even think it's that close when you think about all the others. I guess Brosnan has had some good roles and I think he's definitely someone that's getting better roles with age. Right. But he was in a lot of like rom-coms in his earlier years. Yeah. It's probably, it's definitely Craig for sure. Um, wanted to go over one other thing that just did not work for me. Lucifer Safin. Yeah. Well, Come what on, a, man. What, what a uh, nuanced name. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Rami Malek, not having the best year, I would say, uh, movie wise. What was he in? Um, the Little Things with Oh yeah Denzel. Where right. you know, I think there was a lot of hype for that, and that fell pretty flat. Um, I thought honestly, the fact that Christoph Waltz had so much more levity as Blofeld in the ten minutes he was there, rather than uh, Malik, and, you know, getting triple the screen time and less effective. I don't right, know. just didn't work for me. Yeah, you know. The Malik character is so funny because this, this is very everyone agrees that it's it's not a good villain, not an effective villain. It starts out great though. That early uh, cold open when we're in Norway, we're with young Madeline, who we don't know it's mm-hmm. Madeline yet, and he just menacingly, uh, you know, lurks around the house and kills uh, her mom because Mister mm-hmm. White again, Mister White is always always there. Mister White killed his family, right? That was really good. The porcelain mask, really stark uh, mm-hmm. visual for a villain. But then, like, he's barely in the film. And his overall motivations and goals are not clearly stated. He is very much, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's like an old school Roger Moore Bond villain where he's just really general, I'm evil and I will take over the world, you know? Like, he's uh-huh. really not... Uh, not not even not like explained you know like at the end i still really liked watching uh craig and uh lashana lynch like slink around that compound and like the, the poison the, the the poison plants and stuff are cool visuals and the people down in the depths in the suits but like malik himself like i mean you get those conversations at the end when he's holding the kid and and, and they're okay enough but like the, the movie itself just wasn't that interested in Malik's presence as the villain for like 90 minutes that it was hard to be super invested in. It's almost like, okay, now we have to deal with this. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. And I think it's just also hard because um, he, a lot of the Bond villains don't have a ton of physicality, but I think it was like, this might have been the least amount of physicality of any Bond villain. And, you know, so even his weapon was, you know, a, a bioweapon, obviously a really interesting concept for that. But um, just overall, I just think left me just being like, eh, okay, this seems pretty weak and just, just didn't work for me overall. Um, you know, as I'm thinking about the bioweapon, I'm thinking about Q a lot, right? And we get Ben Wishaw and he's back as Q. I I liked a lot of the stuff about with like Craig and and Q, you know, reuniting and I missed you Q like that. Their their dynamic has always been really fun in the movies. I feel like Wish I'll get a little bit more to do in this. Yeah, and I, I like his. Q. Um, he seems like maybe someone that could potentially come back in future Bonds if he hmm. just wants to keep playing this role. But and maybe we'll talk about that. But um, yeah, I didn't he, think the tech was that interesting. This was the point I was trying to make but you're right yeah like those those bond trademarks you get some i guess um there's a nice payoff with the uh the watch electric watch and killing the cyclops guy who kind of recurs i like that Mm -hmm. um but other than that it's nothing we hadn't seen before i mean it's nice in the beginning when we're in italy to watch pond whip around in the aston you know Mm -hmm. with, with you know the bulletproof glass and the machine guns it's you know a bond trope but it's a bond trope for a reason also um yeah, yeah, I think uh, you de- you definitely get some good cue, like you said, because he has actually a lot of I think more more meaningful lines here. Mm-hmm. Money Penny less so, you know. No Harris is kind of there. Even yep. M, you know, like I think Ray Fiennes is M, definitely better Inspector. He's more central character there. Um, obviously, M, really really great from Judy Dench and Skyfall. Obviously, oh, yeah. um, and it, it, that's nothing to reflect on too, right? Like Ray Fiennes, Naomi Harris, Ben Whishaw. None of them even show up until Skyfall, I know. which could have easily been the ending movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny to think about, right? Yeah, and I mean, the, those are, what, three of the biggest names, I guess you'd put Jeffrey Wright up there. Yes, um, as Felix as well. Bardem, right? obviously, and Christoph Waltz shows up eventually. Yeah, Skyfall really just gave them so much more, I don't know, panache <laughs> like, to the series, so much more legitimacy. Um, and not, not that like the series needed it, but just in terms of like actual good movie. Um, you know, we mentioned Waltz uh, as Blofeld. He's gone now, obviously killed off. Um, Jeffrey Wright also killed off as CIA agent Phoenix later. Yeah. And that was a little sad. It was sad. And I think the reason it was sad is because goddamn Billy Madison was good as yeah. a hateable bad guy. I thought he was great. Dude. And I fucking hated him when they killed he <laughs> killed Felix. Yeah, I, I really liked his whole like, like t- he I think towed the line of like kitschiness from like the old Bond villains yeah. and like that like really talented actor like I'm actually going for it here yeah. like line He's smiling all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he was, and it was like this nervous smile, and then like even when even when he like locks him in, he's like flying away. He's like, oh, I was such a fan of his. Like th- like that sort of kitschy stuff. Like it it worked for me. I thought yeah. he was great. Yeah, and you know, like not, I don't have the answer, but like maybe if Ash Billy Madison's character, maybe if Ash was actually the main villain and Rami Malek was not here at all, unless his more thing. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's something to that because I thought the way they set up Ash's turn, like he's really compelling when he's like. You know, Felix like a oh, political appointee. You know, like uh, yeah, it's, it's all really well done, right? And like, oh no, he's just he's a deputy for 
Malik. Safin. Yeah, for Safin. And, oh, Safin, you know, really scared of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I agree. Magson was great. And another newcomer, Anadon's being on girl, who he doesn't sleep with, just gets to be badass as a. Yes. Paloma. Yeah, agent down in, um, where were Cuba. they? Cuba. Yeah. And, man, that, that set piece, that shootout, electric. Put that right into my veins. Fuck yeah. And, and that was also cool, too, because, like, it's really good just as a scene, as a set piece, action filmmaking. Craig, awesome in it, kicking ass. LaShawn Lynch kicking ass. Onda Armas kicking ass in a cocktail dress. Very impressive. But yeah. also, like, it's serving this greater serialized thing where they're killing off all the Spectre characters. <laughs> yeah. You know, all the Spectre, yeah. uh, like, uh, agents, as it were. But yeah, I mean, that was really good. And, and her, her her status as like a less is more character only there for 20 minutes. Really great. You know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge contributed to the script alongside um, Purvis and Wade, who have been the screenwriters of the past seven Bond movies. We don't exactly know what Phoebe's contribution is, but the Broccoli family said it was significant. I wonder if it had anything to do with... Um, some honest lines because I thought the way she played off Craig was really impressive mm-hmm. and like she, she didn't like tilt her hand right and at the end Bond's like asking her oh three weeks of training huh you know it's mm-hmm. really really likable yeah I, I loved uh even though obviously totally like unrealistic but when they stopped to take the, the shot together I just thought that was like it's yeah. such, such a cool part and they just go and like kick more ass and get out of there just really really right. really awesome. i mean also like she's a hollywood it girl right now too so it's just like a yeah. huge moment to have her have this great scene in a james bond movie right now well and, and you think about past james bond movies like i said uh, an actress like her would most likely show up to be a love interest of bond and then probably be killed off pretty quickly thereafter right. and to have her just kind of show up and just kick ass is like such a cool like subversion of expectations that I just I just loved that. Um, wanted to just also shout out two more action scenes I thought were just really phenomenally done. The uh, the car chase scene with uh, uh, Craig obviously running from uh, Matt Magnuson with his uh, daughter and Cedo uh, Cedo in the car I thought it was just like really really awesome chase scene through the forest and then. Uh, just that whole thing really worked for me. I thought that was great. Oh, yeah. Um, did you like that? Yeah, I did. The fog, really yeah. cool. Watching Craig like when he sets up the tripwire and stuff for the motorcycle, going through yeah. the water, things splashing. Yeah, that that was all really worked for me. And I also liked in the ending scene, like uh, Craig fighting all the guys up the stairwell. Like, fuck yeah, that awesome, that, awesome. Yeah, that that was that was like kind of Wick esque, you know. Yeah. James Bond is 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 the original action franchise, and you know since it's been going on, we've had so many things come up and take a piece of the pie, like Mission Possible and Wick and Fast and Furious, right? So Bond, and we'll talk about this when we talk about casting the next Bond. Bond will have to change a little bit to keep going, but um, you, I thought that was a really like modern piece of action filmmaking, cool to see. I love the beginning set piece in uh, Matera in Italy. Obviously, gorgeous location. I, I wasn't sure exactly where it was at first. So I was like, is this Toledo, Spain? Like, you know, that, that uh, kind of like classic, like European village town with the tiled roofs and, you know, the arid, uh, you know, landscapes and stuff. Obviously, gorgeous locations. But to yeah. see that, right, and Bond do like the, the motorcycle chase and he's on the run and like he's really flustered and 
I, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's a big part of the trailer too, you know. So we we we'd seen it a bit, but I love that scene. Yeah. And meanwhile, so that scene's cool. introducing a lot of like the serialized nature, right? He's with Lisa Du. Uh, he's going to Vesper's grave. You know, like there's yep. all these things that's like, huh? I didn't know we were going there. But uh, the, the the scenes itself are are really kinetic. Yeah. No, I I totally agree, and I I think that's why even though there are it's not a perfect movie and it's definitely number three in the series for me um those scenes and just those moments really embody bond i mean the fact he got to put on the, the tuxedo and fight alongside anadarmus in the last one just like awesome you know you see him walking in the tuxedo he just looks great like you get everything you want from a bond movie in this i think so very yeah pleased. i also loved at the end in the compound he does the turn around and shot uh, shoot with the pistol yep. the the iconic uh motion love to see that um oh a shot the uh, the lab scene uh the second scene i, I thought that was pretty good too um, yeah and oh we, we, we get we should talk about lashana lynch too who for time is 007 you know it's just the number um mm-hmm. a lot of bandied about stuff when she was cast of course all these you know idiots online stuff but it seems like the broccoli family will be keeping james bond uh, male but it also shows that you know there, there's a there's a lot of room for uh female characters to evolve in the series like you said between mm-hmm. lynch and onda armis you know i think that's pretty obvious I, I think lynch feels very set up for a um james bond spinoff series on mm. amazon now that amazon would be interested rights, in that you know so the it, it feels very much like she's set up for something like that right 008 yeah, exactly, or something like that. Make, make it like 005, I don't know. That feels better than 8 for some reason to me. But regardless of the number, yeah, I, I thought she was fun. Um, and, and the dynamic dynamic between her and James I thought was great. Also, again, subverting those expectations of the Bond girl with her like showing up in Cuba and then being like, yo, like this is what's going on, like back off type of thing, I thought was really great. Set up mm-hmm. their dynamic really well. Yeah, I, I liked her. Yeah, I, I also like kind of the pissing contest she's having with uh, Bond when Bond's doing stuff for Felix, you know, at Cuba. Yeah. That was that was fun, for sure. Um, any last thoughts on Bond before we move on to who will play the next one? Uh, I just have one last note. I didn't come up with this myself. I saw it online, but we have that uh, the first scene in Norway, the flashback scene, and then we get everything else. How old is Rami Malek's character supposed to be? I think Obviously, it's something I would totally ignore and not quibble about when watching a movie. But if you think about it, like Lee Se-Do, how old is she supposed to be, right? Well, she went from kid to her current status, and Rami Malek is Rami Malek for all of that. So how, the fuck, how old is he supposed to be? I got the sense he's like 40, right? I like guess. Like 40-ish? So maybe and he she was 20 was... when he attacked her? Yeah, 25, probably something like that. 50, I don't know. Just a note. That, Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, before we move on to the next Bond, is there any director you really want to see take a shot at a Bond movie? Yeah, so that's a great question, right? Um, Carrie Fukunawa is not a Brit, but they usually stick to Brits. Um, so I'll just stick to Brits too. I think there's some obvious names. Top of my list would be Steve McQueen, just because he's a world-class director. We've Talked about that at nauseum with Small Axe last year. Mm-hmm. Um, other than McQueen, I think there's some other, you know, obvious ones. Christopher Nolan, uh, I doubt he would 
come to bond. He's too uh, wants to be too original, which is great, you know. So we'll leave him out. Matthew Vaughn comes to mind just because Kingsman very much has a lot, takes a lot of inspiration from the James Bond movies. He's kind of been making light Bond movies already. Um, so those two stand out to me. Um, if we're if we're not picking a Brit though, I'd love to see Damien Chazelle do it because mm. his approach to action, the way he did the action scenes in First Man, like he obviously we know he's world class. Like I, I think there's some potential there. But you know, there's a, there's a lot of other choices. Kenneth Branagh, Peter Morgan of The Crown. You know, it, 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 I think mm-hmm. the key thing is where is Bond going, and that'll right. inform what director is chosen. Yeah, I. I... I, you you said most ones I thought of. McQueen is obviously number one. Um, we just love to see what he could do with it. Um, you know, Paul Greengrass is someone that kind of intrigues me. He's got the born chops, so it's like right. he's got the action stuff right there. Um, and yeah, you mentioned Branagh. I think uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh would be an interesting one as well. So we'll uh, we'll circle back to that as we hear more. But let's talk more. But let's go into it now. James Bond. Craig's done. Who's next? And it may, why don't we like name like the favorites, and then we can move on to like yeah. maybe who we would like to pick. And you have most of the favorites right there on your screen, Dave. So you want to run through them? Yeah. So I think one of the long-running favorites would be Tom Hardy because he's a very famous, well-known British actor, and he also has, I think, a key moment of doing Bond-esque things, which of course would be in Inception. Mm-hmm. Or James Hart, uh, James James Harden, Tom Hardy was so charismatic and debonair and suave in all the ways you expect of James Bond, and in general, Tom Hardy has been very uninterested in being that kind of movie star since then. Obviously, the jokes about the mask and his voice and covering his face and all that, right? Mm-hmm. But you'd like to think Tom Hardy still has that in him, and if he does, he would be a good Bond. So he's been a favorite for a long time. Of course, Idris Elba's been a favorite for a long time. Um, Amy Pascal noted it in the Sony hack, of course, uh, the emails that came out in the Sony hack. Uh, Idris has been banging it about for a long time. You know, I guess he certainly has the chops to doing something like Luther. And if you want to switch up who Bond is, uh, obviously he's come up for a long time. And then more recently, I think there's there's newer favorites. Uh, Regé Jean Page, the huge breakout from Bridgerton of course he seems to be the new uh flavor of the month it always seems to be that when there's a new uh hot young Brit British guy wearing a suit and something he yep. becomes the new Bond favorite so I don't know if there's any juice to this beyond it just being the timing right now mm-hmm. but he's definitely there and then also um I think more of like the the critics pick the internet pick would be Dev Patel who's having a great year, of course, coming off the Green Knight and also a Brit. So those seem to be the ones kind of rising to the top for me right now. But there's a lot of names, man. And there's been a lot of names for a long time. And like I you know, I said when we did the uh, No Time to Die review, uh, because No Time to Die took a while to come out, you know, director choices changing and then COVID, the choice of a new Bond has also been delayed. And I think age is a big factor in this, right? Especially Idris Elba, who's 49. You know, I, I think the, the, the ship has just sailed on some of the, the guys who are in their mid to late 40s at this point, because they're not going to immediately rush into making a new James Bond movie. 
the Broccoli family has kind of talked about that, right? They're going to take their time with this search, give Daniel Craig his time to celebrate his his end. So they're, they're not going to crap out a new Bond movie in two years, right? So yeah. you got to, anyone in their mid to late 40s has to, I think, be uh, not considered unless they're making a one-off, right? If you're making a franchise, mm-hmm. they, they just are they're just too old. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. Not knowing the direction, but just kind of thinking about where the series has been the last couple of years. And, you know, Craig being an older Bond, a more grizzled Bond. I wonder if they're thinking, let's move this back to a younger, more sleek, like, direction. And if that's the case, definitely someone like um, uh, Jean Page makes a lot of sense. I think even someone like Patel could make a lot of sense, only because he he's you know only 31 and definitely... I'd, I'd love to see him take a crack at like the, the debonair suaveness. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that there's a lot of other people mentioned people like Riz Ahmed, I think would fit that. I mean, he's a little bit older. He's closer to 40, but uh, looks quite young. I, I think still Henry right. Golding, who's yeah. someone that's got a lot of, uh, I think attention probably a year or so ago or more was uh, higher on there. I think he could be really good in that role. I would say Golding's, towards the top of my list when just making a ranked list because of snake eyes i thought he really brought the action chops this year you know snake eyes the gi joe movie uh was not that big of a success but i thought he was one of the best parts about that movie and also a british guy so yeah and you know, all, all these guys are british that we're talking about all these guys are handsome so we got that checked off the brockle <laughs> family has said that, that james bond will remain a man so mm-hmm. we'll just stick to men here uh so yeah, I think Golding's a nice choice. Yeah, there's actually a lot of people that are 31 in consideration right now. Yeah, Betty Jean Page, Henry Golding, Josh O'Connor of the Crown fame, another you know new uh, new flavor, I guess. Taron Edgerton, and also Jack O'Connell. I, I and, couldn't see Edgerton do that and Kingsman though. Yeah, I, I don't think so. It. Right. Yeah. I also wonder if there's a fame element to this, right? Daniel Craig was not like the most well-known actor in the world hmm. when he was cast. Um, I wonder if that would change. Because a lot of people we're talking about are quite famous. Now, someone like Josh O'Connor, yes, he just won an Emmy for The Crown, but he's still really new on the scene. So, and Reggie John Page, obviously huge breakout, really popular, Bridgerton, the most popular show on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. People know who he is now, but he's still new. You know, I wonder yeah. like if that factors into the calculus. Yeah, and you know, you think about some of the other like big names that have been thrown out there. People like uh, Henry Cavill or Killian Murphy, mm. um, or even Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, you know, it's like, is their fame maybe a detraction from someone playing Bond? And if that's the case, I think then Richard Madden. You know, a couple of years ago with the bodyguard a lot of attention people were talking about it fell off i wonder if they might circle back to him i think there's potential yeah and it'll probably come back up after eternals which he plays a major role the marvel film coming out next month so yeah i feel like he'll get i think he's gonna get a long look you know um i wonder if they might decide his acting chops are more in the good not great camp though you know i'm not sure yet but I'd be down with that. I think he's a solid choice. Two names that are on the list, uh, Boyega and Kaluuya. Boyega, I could totally see in the role. I think he would be great. And Kaluuya, I could see being like maybe the best Bond villain there's ever been. But I I could not see him really as Bond. I can't Mm. just picture it. 
but I feel, I feel like you could like murder uh, or actually murder Bond, but actually just be a great um, villain right. in general. It's a good question. I love Daniel Kaluuya. I think he's the better actor of the two. Oh yeah. And we haven't really seen him do something Bond-esque before. So I guess that's yeah. kind of the hiccup. Now I think he's that good of an actor that I think he could do it. And I think if you're just doing a uh, meritocracy, you're just trying to pick the best actor for the job who's British. It's it's Kaluuya. He's he's perhaps his number one, you know. And Boyega uh, definitely uh, eased any you know questions about his talent last year in Small Axe. He's also world class, mm-hmm. and we've seen with like you know Finn in Star Wars that he also has a charm. So, you know, I think either one's a good choice. Anyone K- else? Kaluuya. It's hard to see them t- doing Kaluuya, right? Because like that that kind of needs to be sold to the general audience just because of his career to this point, not because of his talent. People in the know know, but not everyone knows, you know? And I don't know. Do you, do you, do you think they will cast a actor of color as Bond? Because it opens up, unfortunately, a ridiculous shitstorm when you do it. You wonder if Eon and, uh, you know, the Broccoli family at Eon, they're really the ones who have the only say in the matter. You know, they have mentioned that Bond is a British man they haven't he definitely doesn't need to be white they've said that already but I wonder if they'd actually do it Uh, I it's hard for me to see it um it and like you said it's it's really unfortunate and also just unfortunate for the fact that like you said Kaluuya is probably the most talented person that would be considered for the role but I just could not see it I think also just one other piece of Kaluuya beyond the um not seeing him in a role like this i think just physically he seems like very doughy and we've seen people who are like you know not super jacked get jacked kumail nanjiani we're gonna see him in eternals as super dev would have to bulk up if he was it was bond for sure yeah exactly so there's like definitely ways around that just like i think i i think just his physical appearance and also just the lack of roles like that feel like a weird fit but yeah i unfortunately agree i don't I can't see it. I hope I'm wrong on that, though. Like, I, I think even someone like um, John Page, who I, I haven't seen his work in Bridgerton, I think that would probably raise a lot of uh, comments from very narrow-minded people if he were cast, because he's right. not a white Bond. But I think he could be great in it. So right. I hope they don't let that detract them. On the other hand, you might even get comments on the other side where John Page, he's a light-skinned guy, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh well, they they didn't they didn't pick someone who was that dark, you know. Unfortunately, right. I feel like someone would say that too. Um, I mean, it, it'd be a whole mess, unfortunately, no matter what happened. Um, Anyone else that really stands out to you as a potential for this? Yeah, well, I think we should just say, Killian Murphy's forty five, Tom Hardy's forty four, Tom Hiddleston's forty. I'm writing all of them off, you know. Before Spectre came out, they were better choices, but I just think from the age angle. And assuming they're not make, doing a Lazenby, they're not doing a one-off, I have no reason to expect them to do that. Serialized franchises are what you do now. So you want people to invest in Bond moving forward. It needs to be, from the jump, coherent serialized storytelling. So you yep. need an actor for the long haul. And I, I just can't, I can't see any of those guys getting picked. So that's why I think you got to think of the people in their early 30s, right? John Page, yep. Golding, Josh O'Connor, Jack O'Connell, 
Um, James Norton has been bandied about for a while from uh, mm. who's the lead in McMafia. He was in the Nevers. Haven't seen too much of him, but he's kind of been a like the sharp pick for a while, it seems like. So I had to guy bet, I would pick, they're going to pick one of these relatively new on the scene white guys. Yeah, that, that would probably, that, that's where the money probably is too. Um, what do you think about, just real quick, Paul Mescal, normal people fame? Yeah. So Paul Mescal's Irish. I don't know if that's a deal breaker for the Bracca family. Not really sure. Obviously, he's not of the UK. He's not British. He's Irish. He, so he's, he's almost the British, but he's not in terms of uh, geography anyway, not to offend anyone. So I don't know if that's a deal breaker, but Paul Mescal, right? Love them in normal people. Haven't seen him do too much, though. He's only done a few theater productions and normal people. He's been cast in some other stuff since. So maybe he doesn't have the tape yet. But I think he could bring the physicality. Unless you had some training. I definitely think so, too. Um, also, just real quick, I'm, I'm looking through a, a betting site here. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't mention Fa- Fassbender. Would love it if they picked him. I don't too think old. they will too old um clive standen on this betting website has four to one odds he's in the uh, nbc series taken um just looking at some pictures he's jacked handsome dude we got great hair yeah i I mean he he feels like he's right up there oh he was Um, on the vikings the show vikings as well yeah um and also james mcavoy very very interesting name on there. I think he's too old as well, but just did not expect to see that. Jamie Dornan, you know, riding off that uh, Fifty Shades of Grey fame. Yeah, he's been in some other stuff that's redeemed him, but I don't think he's uh, no. a strong enough actor to have serious consideration. Uh, definitely going to be interesting to see who comes yeah. out of this. If you had to, if you had to place a bet and pick somebody, who do you think it's going to be? I'm going to go with Josh O'Connor. I think Josh O'Connor. We should also know Henry Cavill, he's, quote, only 38. And we have seen him, you know, in The Man from Uncle. That's true. Bond-esque, Mission Impossible, the action chops. But he's Superman. He's the Witcher, Geralt from The Witcher. I, I don't know if they would immediately pick someone so franchise-indebted the way Cavill is. But he, he would be, I think he'd be good. But I don't think they, they go that route. Also, another person on the betting sites for a long time is Sam uh, Hugan, who's the lead of Outlander, the wrong, long-running show. Uh, but he's 41, so probably a no-go at this point. Yeah, I put my, my money on Josh O'Connor. But man, the, the Reggie John Page thing, something about mm. it could be different. I'm not sure. I, I would love it if they went for him. You know, I don't really have a good feel on this. It really feels like it's just like up in the air. Um, Maybe James Norton. I feel yeah, like I've seen a lot of that's things the about other him one, recently. Yeah. Um, he definitely would be an interesting choice, I feel like. He doesn't have the, like, I think traditional handsomeness. He's more in, like, the Craig uh, mold right. in that sense. But I think he has the physicality for it, so that would be interesting. Um, who would I really like them to pick? I mean, Robert Pattinson, of course. But they're not going to. Watch Tenet, man. He can wear a fucking suit. Yeah. And we already know he's an amazing actor. He man, can do it. That would be so good. Be <laughs> Batman and Bond. Let's go. <laughs> amazing. Uh, dude, we should wrap it there. This is a long one today. It is. It is. What we got for next week? Uh, next week, we have the return at last, Succession, Season 3, HBO. 
advanced reviews are stellar. Fucking hyped. Uh, that's the biggest thing, of course. The Last Duel, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jody Comer, Ridley Scott. Medieval Epic. Say No More. And then some some records we got to talk about. Young Thug, very excited about his. Less excited about uh, Coldplay. Uh, Let's go. Phineas debut album, Phineas O'Connell, Billy Eilish's brother. Not really sure what to yeah. expect there, but I'm going to listen. So we got some things. Got some things. Go see uh, Last Duel. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.